0: Welcome. mama ma mama come on. Come on, come on. mama ma mama come on. Come, oh, come on. on. Come on. Caleb. Yo. God, Caleb does the sea thing of just nothing. <laughs> Guys, shut up, will you? <laughs> I'm trying to practice the clarinet. <laughs> Welcome
1: to yelling at the screen. This is episode 29, we are covering the 1986 film by Lam Nai Choi, The Seventh Curse.
0: Jack, did you say it right? I don't know if I said it right. <laughs> Jack, 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 Jack. I mean, come on. I do get so self-conscious
1: about names, though. <laughs> There's one big one.
0: Like, okay, do you guys know what um, Giallo is? No. No. Giallo, like really... are you talking about gelato, like no, the Italian like dessert? dessert?
1: <laughs> so Giallo is a really famous 60s, 70s Italian horror subgenre, and there have been a few times where I've almost recommended we watch a Giallo film for this podcast, but then the creeping self doubt in the back of my head goes, you only not even be able to pronounce the name wrong, you'll probably call it gelato,
0: you idiot. And I'm kind of like, oh, no,
1: no, I'm sorry, Argento, we can't do it.
0: <laughs> Jeez. Uh, Jack, we got to get you medicated, bro.
1: (laughs) No, but we're not talking about Italy today. We're talking about freaking Hong Kong. Ladies and gentlemen, this is my second time watching this film, The Seventh Curse. So I'm going to open with Colin and Caleb talking about their first impression since they had their first viewing of this little film recently. Caleb, would you like to start? Yeah,
2: I'll start. I know this is not true. My impression of the movie it felt like a fever dream oh for sure because of how fast pace it was how quick it was quick and fast pace is the exact same thing instead of quick i mean short the film was because it's less than i think like 80 minutes
0: bless jack why can't you pick more movies like this
1: <laughs> no, this film is really just proof that my taste is not just defined by Sergio Leone once upon a time. In Dude, the West.
0: Honest, so honestly, like, this movie is a little bit outside of my uh normal wheelhouse we'll say. I think that if this movie was three minutes longer, I would have checked out of it. <laughs> but that one twenty minute ooh, mwah, Chef Kiss.
1: Hey, I'm honored, man. Glad to hear that we hit your time frame. But speaking of checking out, we accidentally cut Caleb off on his first impression. So go ahead, Caleb. (laughs) I do like what Paul was saying. And
2: the fever dream commentary doesn't make it better or worse for me, mainly because I know it's not supposed to feel like a fever dream. There's actual story action here. I think if it was intentionally trying to be a dream, that would have been a little bit more on the nose. For a movie like this. But apart from the my dreamlike experience of watching it and thinking about it, I had a good time with it. I kept I kept texting you this, Jack. It was literally all rise, the whole movie. It just kept building mm-hmm, and building. Mm-hmm. And there's this new idea or mythology or, or a new action sequence. Literally from second one till, till the end. And I thought that was a, a great part about it that kept me
1: engaged the whole time. Very nice. Well, thank you, Caleb. Colin, my boy, what did you think about The Seventh Curse?
0: So, dude, I remember a conversation that you and I had off-camera, off-mic, where you described this movie as, like, the uh, Chinese Hong Kong Evil Dead. And I didn't remember that conversation when I started the movie. And then... Uh, They get to (laughs) Thailand, (laughs) and the little demon comes out of the guy's butthole and eats that dude, and I'm like, oh, 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 I remember now, (laughs) and I had Evil Dead flashbacks all the way from high school. Uh, from the first time I watched it, and that old lady was coming out of the the, the, the little trap door. Spoilers. Was like, I
2: haven't seen <laughs> Evil Dead, Colin.
0: I, I promise, Caleb. If it makes you feel any better, Caleb, he's kind
1: of half wrong in describing the scene, okay. but I'm not going to spoil the movie. Okay, good. We also haven't seen the movie since high school, so maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> oh, crap. Is that Evil Dead 2? It might Dang. even be
0: the Evil Dead remake. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Dude, okay, we're not talking about Evil Dead. We're talking about the Seventh Curse. So, well, real quick,
1: Colin, I wanted to say you're right about that worm scene where he like opens his cape and the little worm demon's like ah, like it just happens so abruptly, like just no context, no like, oh by the way, I have a
0: Pokemon with me. Let's go. It's just there.
1: It's just all like blood, 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 and you're like, oh that my, quickly. <laughs> yeah, this movie just went
0: from zero to ten thousand miles an hour.
1: All you got to do is you got to take that scene and then you just cut to Jim from the office just doing Jim face
0: at the camera like. (laughs) (laughs) So I believe, and this is going to be kind of something that I'm going to continue to reference as I discuss this film. But I believe that I lack a significant amount of cultural awareness, not awareness, but like like Mm -hmm. like uh because i'm not chinese because i don't speak oh yeah yeah cultural context that that is a hundred percent missing for me that's always really difficult to overcome in a movie and i think i overcame it in this movie um and you know what i don't want to reveal too much of my rating too soon but i uh i enjoyed it i i truly truly enjoyed this movie Well, good,
1: Colin. I'm happy to hear that. And we're going to talk more about that cultural context because I think that's a very good kind of framework, a very strong foundation to build any discussion on a foreign film, whether it's something very serious and artsy, something you see at the Cannes Film Festival lineup, or something a little bit more silly, cheesy, B-movie-esque, kind of like what we're talking about today. But Something
0: we that, like Parasite. Ooh. Mm. Mm. See, I
1: would make the argument, I'm going to get to my first impression, but I would make the argument that I think Parasite is more of that middle ground territory where someone like Bong Joon-ho is going to be kind of classified, put in with these high-caliber artistes and you know, the, finger quote, slow cinema. But then he's very obviously influenced by Hitchcock and making these semi-quasi-thriller type films. So I think that's a good discussion point we should hit on, too. But before we do that, I'm going to pick up my pen, which I dropped. And then I'm going to talk about my person. So I discovered this film because I am a big fan of a little comedy podcast called Podcast About List. And one of the hosts on Podcast About List, his name is Cameron, It's a very good Letterbox profile. I'll share that later. He highly recommended this movie as the perfect movie to hang out with a bunch of friends and get drunk to, but it's also actually really good. And I saw how long the movie was, and I thought, this looks cool. I'll check it out. Less than 90 minutes. You know, I haven't seen a new movie in a couple weeks. And I was blown away by it. Absolutely loved it. I loved the practical effects. I loved the choreography. I loved the costumes, the stunt work, the makeup, the goriness, the -the over-the-top nature of it all. It was so Cool to watch, and I thought this film very much gives me the vibes that I got from when Colin and I sat down to watch Secret of the Ooze. It was really cool, a very different kind of context. This is d- definitely a bit more on the R rated side of things, but <laughs> I was very much into this aesthetically, thinking about how they created this, what they were going for, the short length, what Caleb was talking about with the rising escalation. So for me, I knew this is one I wanted to bring to the podcast. On the rewatch, the one thing that I think stuck out with me more that didn't really hit me on the first watch is, God, I I love Maggie Chung. She's a great actress, one of Hong Kong's all-time famous best actresses. But, man, she's annoying in this movie. (laughs) She's the reporter, Sally.
0: Oh, Sally, yeah. Man, she's annoying. But, anyways,
1: apart from that, I love this movie. Great, great film. Maggie Chung's in, like, two dozen really
0: great films it's okay she gets to play the annoying reporter every now and then <laughs> yeah man come on what what is what is our favorite <laughs> what is our favorite uh uh best hits album called jack they can't all be zingers shout out to primus <laughs> shout out to primus <laughs> avid listener yeah thank, thank you Les claypool <laughs> yeah dude we appreciate cool. you
1: so real quick, if it's okay with you guys, I want to go a little bit back to... Let's let's back up a bit, rewind a bit, to what Colin was saying about cultural context. Because with the exception of Akira, we haven't really talked a lot about foreign films as far as the main feature segment goes. And Akira, does that even count? It's so big, it's so popular, such a big part of pop culture, science fiction anime, what people picture, so I think this is definitely a more genuine 80s foreign film that we're covering for the first time, so I want to hit on what Colin was talking about with cultural context. I think where something like The Seventh Curse really works is that it's not necessarily, and correct me if you think I'm wrong on this, because I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but it's not necessarily a dialogue-heavy, script-heavy, this is a film about big major themes and characters talking about the major themes. There's no... Oh, no. No sound of metal moment where an older character is trying to explain to Riz Ahmed a bigger theme that they need to understand. This is mainly a, okay, time to go to the jungle, time to fight the worm tribe, time to fight some monsters, some witchcraft, here are the monks, let's climb the Buddha, here we go. It's not really meant to invigorate deep philosophical thinking. You know, It's not one to have a deep dive intellectual examination. And I'm not saying you can't do that with a film like The Seventh Curse because this is film after all. It's an art form. We want to do those things. But the intention of this film is to definitely provoke entertainment. This is a film that every review you're going to see on Letterboxd is like, oh, this is a good old rip-roaring fun time. And there's a reason for that. That's what the creators of this film were
0: going for. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it it just it puts its foot on the gas pedal, and then it doesn't let up from the gas pedal yeah, at exactly. all. It's just like, all right, here's the movie. I think I made a comment. I think I shared this comment with you guys, and let's let's, let's, let's talk, shall we, about something that I like to, to talk about, budgets. Uh, this movie, I think it very clearly had money thrown at it. Like, it had a budget. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. think we can all agree on that. True. Sure. And I don't think I can tell you exactly what they spent their money on. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't think I can. Yeah. I it's it it was a little bit insane, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> oh man, but I but it's just it's it's one of those things that Oh, and this is the same thing and we I'm going to keep bringing up Evil Dead because this is the thing that it reminded me the most of. I mean
1: that's kinda where I was gonna go next too, so that's perfect.
0: Just look at just look at that skeleton. Like, look no further than that skeleton. And like it is clear, very, very clear that this movie which one came out first, Jack? You know these things. Yeah, I was actually gonna talk a little bit about that because a lot of this film definitely has this what's the word I'm looking for?
1: Not necessarily influence, but you can feel the cultural explosion of films like Temple of Doom or Evil Dead. Yes. This very 80s campy silliness that would dominate the market like with films by John Carpenter and then you could see other markets around the world say well we can recreate that we can make our own version of that and you can definitely see the Hong Kong producer sitting down and being like okay Carpenter we see Big Trouble in Little Chinatown let's have our own version of that let's go. And I think Caleb you brought up off mic that this We did a little research that this was also based off old pulpy action serial books that were very popular at the time. Or not at the time, but popular in Hong Kong about the kind of doctor detective character going into the jungle to save the girl and save the day. And you definitely get that pulp vibe from this. I think this is very much a capital B, B movie, very much influenced by a lot of the cultural popular things going on in big budget Filmmaking in the '80s in a fun, cool way that I like.
0: Yes, this movie. Uh, one of the things so I watched it with Catherine, obviously, uh, and she gave up part part way through this movie. She couldn't take it anymore. Uh, <laughs>
1: well, good for you, Colin, for sticking it out.
0: But we'll her number you. her number one complaint about the movie was uh, she's like, "This is so '80s." Oh my god, look at what she's wearing. Oh my god, look at what she just did. This movie is so '80s. <laughs> And I have to say, I kind of agree with her. Like, very 80s-style movie, for sure.
1: Yeah, and that's something I definitely want to dive into a little bit more in kind of the novelty of this film and kind of the looking back at how this film has aged. But before I do that, I kind of wanted to give Caleb, a, pass the mic over to him a second, to see what he thought about this film's tone and vibe a little bit.
2: Yeah, I, I wanted to add from your initial point Jack about how this isn't a a narrative that is driven by the themes or the character dynamic as much as it is driven by the action and, you know, these set pieces that they have maybe this group, you know, with like the worm tribe and how they're engaging with the people that are entering. It's not, this isn't a, a character driven story. Like, I don't know that I could tell you more than a surface levels worth about these characters in the sense like who they are outside of what's going on with this worm tribe
1: i mean this is the type of movie where you kind of forget the characters names a week after you watch it exactly like i i mean you said you said sally and i had to go
0: (laughs) wait a minute (laughs) look look up on letterbladder well in my defense i actually don't even know if
1: her name's sally i think that was just dubbing or not dubbing the the U.S. subversion—they just gave her an English name.
0: Oh, oh yeah. Really they, cool. So yeah, Doctor Yuan became Doctor yeah, Young. Doctor Young. <laughs> Doctor Wisely became Doctor Wesley. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's oh my yeah. sweet. Fascinating. It's so fascinating. It is. Um, and 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 I know. So having worked in an apartment in College Station, like I totally totally understand Chinese people adopting an American name. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. us white people can't pronounce things like Doctor Yuan correctly because you know English and Mandarin and Cantonese Westerners. or <laughs> yeah, dude, it's just the languages are so different that we can't even bungle our way through it normally like we can with say like Spanish words or something like that. It yeah, some of those were kind of funny <laughs> the 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 names that got chosen. Going back to Caleb's
1: comment about kind of how the narrative, and it's not very character-driven. I think it's almost funny that I picked Song to Song for my last pick, and then I picked this, because both films are very much films where the story kind of takes backseat to other things at play as far as the art of filmmaking goes. With so Song to Song, it's very much a film about the cinematography. It's very much about the editing. You want to see Malik and Lubensky... Well, if you're calling, you don't, but I want to see Malik and Lubensky... <laughs> film hours and hours of Christian Bale and Ryan Gosling, only for Christian Bale to get cut out of the movie, the final product. That's <laughs> right. kind of what the target audience of Song to Song is there for, for the most part. Whether something like The Seventh Curse goes, it is an action-packed movie. Not really about the character arcs, or the drama, or the story, but it really is just, okay, let's go save the day, let's save the village, let's fight some mad guys, time to have some good kung fu action scenes. No CGI. There's practical effects. Look at this choreography. Look at this stunt work. Here we go. That's kind of the target audience that is going to be drawn and interested in something like The Seventh Curse.
2: Sure. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And for me, I, I, I'm not having as strong of a reaction to The Seventh Curse as I think like Colin had to something like Black Bear. <laughs> and this isn't to say that I find the Seventh Curse a weaker film in any way. The care the, the lack of character development in the sense that I don't know who these people are and I can't even remember or tell you much about them. That's a big like problem for me. Mm, and yeah, I, I and that. I and, and you're probably wondering, and Colin's probably like, Well, that was the problem with Black Bear. Uh, and but I didn't really have that problem with with Bear. Uh,
0: black bear but i think that was because of the style yeah you just accepted that that everyone in that movie was a douchebag and moved on (laughs) good for you exactly i
1: think think what colin hit on earlier about oh if this film would have been three minutes longer i might have hated it i think that kind of hits on what works with the seventh curse yeah when they sat down and looked at the final product of this film they knew you know there's no need to make this longer than it is let's just you know, get people what they want. The action, the adventure, the thrills. Let's go for it. Some mild nudity, tasteful nudity. We got it in. let
0: <laughs> Can we... Oh, I have a really big point that I want to talk about that might turn into a soapbox. Speaking of nudity... <laughs> Before you do that,
1: I was just kind of going to... Not counter Caleb, but just hear his response. But I, I get what you're saying, Caleb, about the lack of character drive in this can definitely be a turnoff. And it's funny, because when we get to too lazy to log I'm definitely going to talk more about that but I think for me personally and I want to see what Colin thinks of this a film like Seventh Curse I'm almost willing to kind of overlook that character driven shortcoming because I'm so enthralled and interested in the weird zombies and the over the top action and just seeing a character walk into a hotel room and all these different guns are just lying up on a piano
2: (laughs) well yeah so I'll I'll say this then in response to you Jack where it lacks in like character development, it makes up for in specifically the worm tribe, like the mm, backstory, mm. like what they did with this. You know, li- like I said in our messages, the like lore of this story is super well defined and it's very rich. And you can tell there's probably something even more grand. There's more stories. There's more chapters to whatever's going on. With this group of people,
1: yeah, and I think one thing I'll add on to that too, just because I'm kind of I'm feeling it, I'm in my feels, I'm in I'm in the mode. I got I gotta go, but a lot of times you get little character details from things that aren't necessarily said. There's that great bit during the police raid at the beginning with the hostage situation, where they get Doctor Young, who's played by Chin Seo Ho. Really hot actor, by the
0: way. Yes. Very nice. so, also, young Chow
1: Yun Fat, very oh, hot. Like wow, Chow Yun Fat,
0: you could get it <laughs> every day, <laughs> any day of the week. Ooh, ooh. Yeah,
1: Ch- Chow Yun Fat definitely hottest part of this movie. Sorry, everyone else, but, but but anyways, I'm going back. I'm getting I'm getting distracted. I'm getting caught up. Oh my goodness! So there's that scene where they're approaching the terrorists, the hostage situation. And they're like, we have a doctor, we're coming to approach. And they're walking up and they kind of give some like warning shots, like aim at their feet to specifically let them know they're they're dangerous and they're criminals, they're going to cause problems. But Dr. Young, everyone kind of flinches they're like, oh shit, we're getting shot at. But Dr. Young is just so stoic, he doesn't move, he's just ice cold, he's so cool, he's like, I've seen worse. It's little bits like that that I think, they're not necessarily a substitute replacement for. A lack of character development per se but they kind of just give you an idea of who these
0: people are in that silly action movie way that i really respect oh for sure, sure. <clears throat> yeah i i, I want to address uh, talking about the character development uh i think that caleb was under the impression that this movie was uh again a movie and not a uh action set piece spectacle <laughs> um, oh dang. I, I like where you're going with this call. We're gonna come back. Yeah. Later. Yeah, man. Like like what uh oh well, man, now I cannot remember. Uh what was the other movie that we I feel like we just watched it that I said Six Underground? Six Underground, yes, thank you. Uh like this movie isn't yeah, it, it's not supposed to be a uh a movie. <laughs> it's supposed to be this uh bombastic, huge, explosive Stunt feel—it's like a show you watch at Six Flags. I'm pretty sure I said that before, also.
1: Yeah, that was five episodes ago. So I, I give you, I give you grace.
2: <laughs> that is a very interesting comment because I was actually off mic talking to Jack this week about the transformation of cinema towards if you're going to go watch a movie in the future, like what would it be like and. I was listening to this YouTube analysis of Scorsese talking about movies like the MCU, for example, and how in the future they, they might be viewed at the amusement park instead of at a theater, you know, at the studio instead of, so you saying like, Oh, this could be viewed at like a six flags this action spectacle. Like that's, that might be the future. I was calling. Do you you have any takes on that?
0: I, That's not how I want to spend my time at Six Flags, but you know, (laughs) I can appreciate other people wanting to pay sixty dollars only to pay another ten dollars to go. Well, yeah, like
2: you like go to the you go to the Disney worlds, the like Universals of uh, of 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 the world, and you can choose to do the rides, you can choose to do the expensive food, but you can also choose to watch this. You know, whatever the big hit
0: is. Right, this insane... This franchise piece. Yes. Okay, I I can appreciate something like that, for sure. Okay. That's legit. I will say that
1: I think the difference between something like these 80s-styles films that Khan and Catherine are talking about, something like The Seventh Curse or Evil Dead or a John Carpenter film, I think the difference with those is how they're made and what the end product looks like is a very different process and product than what you get from contemporary filmmaking. Have you guys heard the controversy about Kevin Feige and Chloe Zhao for The Eternals?
2: Uh, no. I have not. I didn't know
1: there was controversy. I mean, it's it's like very small Twitter or whatever. It's just film Twitter people being dumb. But there was a lot of people making fun of Kevin Feige because... He was very adamant that they were going to shoot Eternals all green screen like they've done for a lot of the Marvel movies. And Chloe Zhao was like, no, 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 we're going to do this with natural lighting. I can prove we can do it. And then Kevin Feige saw the final product for some of the test screening, test shots that they were doing for Eternals. And he was like, wow, I didn't know movies could look like that with natural lighting. So a lot of the film nerds on Twitter were making fun of him like, oh, of course the Marvel guy doesn't get how to make a real real film. (laughs) Which, you know, whether you laugh at that or not, it is very telling that one of the biggest producers of one of the biggest franchises in current filmmaking doesn't really have a grasp on how certain films are made outside of the big green screen productions that they're doing. And I'm not here to hate on green screen. I've said this before when we talked about Infinity War and Endgame. There's definitely an art to that and it gives people jobs. And there is an importance to those productions that I think has value and there is artistic merit there. And I'm going to be there at Matrix 4, day one, maybe. Let's go. (laughs) But I think going off what Caleb was saying about the whole theme park, amusement park ride, oh, these aren't movies, they're big rides you go on. There is something telling when the people in charge of the next big blockbuster movies don't really understand the craft. They don't understand the art or the form. So I think there is something interesting going on there that for me almost makes... And this is the part where I go full circle and go back to The Seventh Uh Curse. (laughs) But it almost makes The Seventh Curse age better than I think the filmmakers who made The Seventh Curse intended it to.
0: I see that. I can kind of see what you're saying there, for sure.
1: I've said a lot of positive things about this movie, and I kind of, before I let Caleb and Colin take the reins, I just kind of want to put the little closing word there and just say, I think a big part of the reason I love this movie so much is because I think there are so many charming aspects of its production that have aged really well in comparison to what I currently see in films like Tenet or Marvel movies. You know, you don't see movies where they just hop in a jeep and they're just shoving the jeep up the steps of this big runes that they set up, they created. You don't see a lot of movies where you have an overhead shot of a big Buddha statue. You got one hot actor fighting monks on one arm of the Buddha... In the left side of the frame, and the right side of the frame is the other hot actor fighting monks. It's all practical effects, really nice stunt work and choreography. That's not something you get a lot of these days, and I think that adds something special to movies like *The Seventh Curse*. That gets me excited about film in a way that a lot of contemporary films don't. Jack gets
2: the people
0: going. Are you suggesting that practical effects that take time and consideration? And money and effort and planning look better and feel more authentic than CGI monstrosities? Sorry, Thor Ragnarok. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) Thor Ragnarok. (laughs) You didn't go for, say... I guess you're
2: Sorry, right. Sorry, MCU.
1: Caleb, <laughs> did you have anything else you wanted to add in the Scorsese talk? I always love talking about Marty.
2: No, that was the big point uh, because of what Colin had brought up. And I think that is – I think you're right, Jack, that it's that the seventh curse is separate from this discussion in that they use practical effects. They didn't have a over-reliance on the smart technology – to implement something and in, in, in innovative but feels a little bit more detached from 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 reality and i think that we might be in a space and i'm curious if Scorsese has talked about this at all but i feel like we might be in a space where we're doing it so much like it's still so new and we're and it's getting better and we're doing so much of it that we're just pumping out anything and everything it's going to take like a new in, in, in innovator or something, there's something different to really take the CGI technology to the next level in terms of this is how you do it artistically, as opposed to you're just doing it because it's the easy thing to do or it's it's what everyone's doing.
0: And I, and one thing, go ahead, Colin. Go ahead. I, I feel like on this podcast, I'm going to stick up for, uh, our poor, poor uh, animators out there. I, I feel like we take a big doo-doo turd on, on CGI a whole lot as a, as a podcast or as a culture sometimes, and we keep referencing it as, like, the easy thing to do, which, by all means, it is not an easy task to CGI uh, Thanos' face. Like I don't, I, sure. I don't want to understate the work and effort and love that animators, uh, like that CGI creators, put into an art form. I think what I will uh, stick the knife in and twist it in circles and circles on is the fact that these animators are. I feel like they're just never given quite enough time. They're never given quite enough money they're never given quite enough attention, love, and because of that, they run out of time. Because of that, it doesn't the final product does not look as good as it could look. Um and maybe it's a technology issue, maybe our CGI just isn't quite past that uncanny valley dip uh that, you know, that and we have to recover from that somehow, but Man, this is just yet another example of how, even in 2021, practical effects, makeup, dudes in costumes, uh, explode like real explosions, real fighting, real stunts. How just much crisper and cleaner and better it all looks than if they were fighting on a on a soundstage on a green screen. Uh and man, I'm sorry, CGI animators, you can come you can come roast my head on a spic now.
2: Well yeah, and it's probably and I'm not saying that oh their job is so easy, anybody could do it with no tech real technical training. I'm saying like given the variables that you've shared, Colin, and where we're at right now with CGI technology and how it's like <clears throat> so vast in filmmaking now Mm -hmm. that it's beginning to we're pumping this out a lot of content a lot of cgi like so there's there's a lot of probably a lot of people copying each other Mm -hmm. and at what point will that be transformed and taken to what's next there's a lot of like i'm trying to envision okay what where is this going and i want to do this because and how you brought it back to the practical effects Colin is like the practical effects work so well in the seventh curse and it adds to this story and to this world that they're building oh yeah I I wouldn't want to see a CGI version of the seventh curse because I could just go rewatch the seventh curse yeah exactly
0: (laughs) I don't want someone to remake the seventh curse uh, because they would almost assuredly mess it up. <laughs> so Well, and I think a lot of it too is Caleb's hitting on the idea that there
1: are gonna be innovators who are going to take the kind of digital style of creating these worlds and take them into very influential directions soon. I mean, I would even argue George Lucas already did that when he was working on the prequels. Cause I don't think Phantom Menace was entirely shot in digital. But I'm pretty sure Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith were. So I would argue that the groundwork for this whole artist idea behind it is already there. But I think it kind of plays into what Colin was saying about the timeliness and how the resources are allocated.
0: Right, for sure. Because
1: I I personally, I mean, we've talked about the prequels before in the past. We're going to talk about them more in the future because I love those films. I love, love, love the prequels. I think they're gorgeous films. I think they're a lot of fun. They look great. They take you into these imaginative, cool worlds. Because look at Lucas's old trilogy, the original trilogy. A lot of those sets, you know, yes, there's practical effects. Yes, they're real-life locations. But you can't always create some of the things that Lucas envision with the natural sets. You kind of have to have a little bit of CGI, a little bit of animation. And I really like what Colin was hitting on about this idea of... Maybe we are a little bit too harsh on the animators. But for me, I would make the argument, and I feel like this is kind of how I started the conversation, I don't really have a problem with anybody who's interested in CGI or 3D effects or animation. My problem is this idea that someone like Kevin Feige or the Marvel producers, they don't understand that there's other options out there. They kind of have a narrow view of where the future is going to go filmmaking-wise. Which is why I respect Caleb's take about You know, filmmakers, artists are going to come along to help innovate, change that. And people make those arguments. They say, oh, look at Michael Mann chewing everything digital. Look at the Wachowskis. They do so many cool things going on. Right. So I think there is a lot of positive things going on film-wise, but I do think the fact that the people with the big bucks have this narrow view of where cinema's going, that's kind of where the problem is. That's what Scorsese's critiquing. I think he's less critiquing yeah. The actual animators, the foot soldiers on the ground, the sure, f- the little peons working on Thanos's face—you <laughs> know, who you don't remember their names—he's critiquing the people who choose where the millions of dollars go.
2: Yeah, because that's all it is to them, and in some—in some respects, this is just dollars. It's right. What are we right. going to get out of this? That's why the franchises and why they continue to perpetuate the franchise.
1: Well, if it's okay with you two, I vote we move back to the seventh curse because I think Colin had a few other topics he wanted to kind of hit on.
0: Oh, I do. Okay, so let's talk about racism on this film podcast. <laughs> dun dun dun. So I have a question uh, because I legit don't know, and maybe y'all do. Uh, I recently was told a I guess it's I guess you'd call it like an anecdote uh, from a coworker. So I'm a teacher. Uh, obviously. and one of my coworkers uh, has uh, taught in uh, foreign countries. like that was kind of like what he did. Uh, I, I think he taught in I want to say Taiwan, don't quote me on this. I guess it doesn't matter <laughs> anyway. But what he said and what he discovered was that what he he referred to it as the, okay, among different Asian cultures, there is a certain pecking order like they have this view of each other of, oh, you know, the Chinese are better than the Taiwanese the 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 Chinese are are less than the Japanese. You know what I mean? So there's like well, this- there's this whole like sociological
1: realm going on in Asia in the East that us whiteies over in America we don't really know about we're not super familiar with
0: oh exactly That, that that's exactly what I'm talking about and like it become. and anyway he was referencing something happening in our school and saying oh I wonder if you know something like this will happen in America at some point but I was wondering is this movie uh, a, a Chinese Hong Kong production is this movie a little bit Anti-Taiwanese? Is it Taiwan or Thailand? I'm sorry. I keep saying Taiwan because I said Taiwan earlier. Really. Thai- Thailand. Is it anti- No, no, no I, I'm
1: guilty of making that mistake, too. Is oh, it anti-Thailand?
0: That's, that's a much better... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think? Thoughts?
1: Observations? I would make the argument that I don't think it necessarily has racist intentions per se. And there's a few reasons for this. The first is kind of on a macro level, looking at the films that may or may not have influenced this. Have either of you two seen the Steven Spielberg film Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom?
0: Uh, Yes. If I (laughs)
2: have, it's been a long time.
0: Yeah, that's true. It has been uh, an incredibly long time since I have seen it. But I have seen it. Kalima Kalima Where they open in the nightclub called Obi-Wan. You gotta love it. Good
1: job, Lucas. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So one of the big criticisms of Temple of Doom is this idea that, oh, here comes Dr. Jones, here comes good old Indiana, he's in a foreign country, he's in Asia, and he's fighting with all these, you know, poor native tribes and a bunch of white people like Lucas and Spielberg created these scenarios where they do all these horrific, cannibalistic, terrible, primitive, awful evils, and the white man and his white girlfriend in the movie are going to save the day. But they have short rounds, so it's not that racist. But really, when you dig into it, it does look kind of bad that the Westerners are coming in creating a project where you know, the Asian parts of the film are kind of portrayed as villainous. But with something like The Sixth Curse, I think it gets seventh away curse. with it. Be- Wait, what was that? You s- seventh Curse. There's, there's Sorry, w- with something like The Fifth Curse, you The missed- I Sixth think Curse it is an away- unreleased prequel. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I know we skipped so many movies. What were we doing? Yeah. <laughs> I think it kind of, not necessarily gets away with it, but it addresses it in a better way through Chow Yun Fat's character, Dr. Wisely or Dr. Wesley. Right. Because there's a bit where he comes into the village and says, you know, I study witchcraft. I study some of the black magic the worm tribe is working on, and I think we can use this to our benefit. And then you see it because the little worm guy comes in, he's like, ah, da, da, da. and Chow Yun-Fat's like, all right, everybody, you got your your cloths, you got your bags, let's bag them, yeah. let's get them. Yeah, you got your, and you got your black the
0: dog's blood and your... <laughs> got some of the stuff that they listed as ingredients for these, for these spells, <laughs> yeah. man. It was, it was amazing. it's true it's so it's so good it's so funny No, i i there's
1: one bit of dialogue that always gets me kind of unrelated but colin you made me think of this it's that bit where they first witness the sacrifice Mm -hmm. they're like watching on from a distance and he's like i'm gonna go save her and they're like you can't go save her and he says i'll
0: be careful he pulls out a gun i've got a gun it's just so (laughs) like what the heck that's got oh, it. And so see, good. ridiculous lines like that, it's got to be a translation thing. It, it has to be. But it kind of works for the film. It, I think it fits the tone really Yeah, it well. does. You know,
1: it, yeah, you're right. It does. But anyways, what I wanted to say about Chow Yun-Fat and the whole how this film approaches the cultural issues and paganism and all that... There is kind of a fight fire with fire mentality going on in the third act of this film. Oh, for
0: sure. They The idea the, that, yeah. oh, the big
1: monster's coming and killing everybody, well, we'll use our own monster to fight. You know, we've used witchcraft to benefit us. It doesn't demonize another culture, in this case, Thailand's, you know, witchcraft, the fiction, whatever. It doesn't demonize that in a, oh, this is evil and it needs to be killed and, you know, God forbid this be part of anybody's lives. But more of a, okay... We can't beat them, join them. We're in the culture. Let's submit ourselves. Let's get those ingredients. Let's go.
0: I I also want to bring up that I don't think it's necessarily... I think the Worm Tribe and this is going to probably sound ignorant, but I think that the movie does a good job of playing up the -the over-the-topness and ridiculousness of the Worm Tribe. So It's not necessarily saying, oh, look at all these barbaric you know Thai Thai people, it's more like oh look at these cartoony cartoony crazy insane villains campy, yeah. who just happen to be Thai. <laughs> well, and going back to Temple of Doom, Temple of Doom kind of
1: plays that awkward bridge of oh you've made it to the bad guys' temple, but there's a bunch of civilized gentlemen here. Let's sit down and eat our monkey brains because ho 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 this is a third world country and we eat eyeballs in our soup ho ho ho. It it almost plays it for laughs, whether it's what Collins gain at is something like the seventh curse. It very much is like, okay, here's our villain. He speaks really high. Sacrifices are happening, things get crazy. It's very obvious that this isn't to be taken as some literal representation.
0: Yeah, dude. Straight straight up. He sacrifices a hundred children and we get to witness children numbers ninety seven through one hundred. It's amazing. You know, Daisy walked
1: in right during that scene, and she was like, what
0: are you guys watching? So <laughs> Incredible, dude. And you know what? I'm going to get on my soapbox now. I don't know if you guys remember this when I texted I this. I think you know where I'm going. <laughs> I do. We in America need to expand our ideas of things that we should and shouldn't be allowed to witness in film, in video games, in blah, 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 blah. It is 2021, for God's sakes. Our R-rated movies are little baby back bitches compared to other (laughs) countries' R-rated movies. This movie had vaginas. It had boobs. There was a penis in it, I'm pretty sure, at one point. (laughs) They showed children being crushed on the screen. Imagine, just for a moment, this movie being made in America is this would be an X-rated film. Like straight up X-rated film if this was an American movie. It would not be allowed to be showed in movie theaters. One of the best deaths I think in this movie is when they're like approaching the worm tribe
1: to like scout them out and that one soldier walks into like the rope trap. In one foot, and his other foot's in the other. It like throws him up in oh, the air, yeah. and rips his body. <laughs> oh know? yeah, he gets <laughs> drawn, drawn in and so in cool. midair
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing,
1: dude. Now, Colin, where I kind of disagree with you is I do think this film hits a more campy tone with its
0: blood and gore and violence and nudity. No, I I agree, but that would never happen in an American movie. Mm-mm. Even okay, okay, even the even in this tone, even right. in this tone. It wouldn't, yeah. it, it, okay. it would okay. not get made, period. It just wouldn't get made. And right. okay. the okay. reason I think for I that, here. and I think we can all agree on this, is Christians. Christians. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time for Colin's political segment. Christians. Dun, dun, dun. Boo. Ha- half of you, in theory, half of you have boobs. Half of you have vaginas. Half of you have penises. You see them every day. In other countries, nudity is not sexualized. Maybe if you think that all nudity is sexual, you need to look inward and examine what's wrong with your own worldview. Because at any point in this movie, I got to see nudity. And yes, it was supposed to be a little bit sexual, but it was also not played for like anything It was just like, oh, yeah, this is like a thing that happens because, you know, these people are human. And these are things that humans do. They skinny dip. They have sex. And it's just normal. And we can talk about it. And no one cares.
1: Colin's over here talking to the scientists at the beginning of the movie. He's like, oh, I'm doing studies on the effects of your location and region and how that affects sexual (laughs) impact. (laughs) <laughs> Remember by the pool at the party?
0: <laughs> I've thought for a very long time now, and we we just, like, America just has this, if if there's one boob in a movie, it's R-rated. Even if it's not in a sexual context, R-rated. Uh, if, if there's violence in a movie, if there's, like, this horrible, horrific violence. Now, if you took out the nudity and maybe edited the child-pressing scene a little bit differently, this movie might have been rated PG-13. <laughs> You know why? Because we're okay with over-the-top graphic violence. But the minute you throw in a a booby, uh-oh, the kids can't see that. That's bad. The kids can't see that. It might have have them have a sexual awakening. Uh, They can't see that R-rated, X-rated. But you know what? Getting uh, someone ripped literally limb from limb, that's okay. Kids can see that. 13-year-olds, oh, yeah, perfect for them. They can see that.
1: It, this is what I love about Colin, is I, I show him a film, and he goes, look, I don't understand the cultural context. I want to say something insensitive. Oh, by the way, you know, screw these Christians and these evangelicals <laughs> and these conservatives. And how, it's just like, Colin, you're the best.
0: They've ruined They've ruined movies. <laughs> Freaking Colin. But, man,
1: that's... But here, here's the deal, Colin. Oh boy, here's the deal. Here's the deal. This is why I make you watch foreign films, to show you what other parts of the world, how they approach these topics, and... These kind of quote unquote graphic images in a different manner than us
0: filthy Americans do it, you know. Amen, filthy, filthy Americans. Maybe we Colin. Should-
2: Colin what's also true is this: your reason is also why, like, Christian cinema or religious cinema isn't as popular.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> because they
2: aren't using that to sell their to sell their movie. So it kind of like you. you flip it
0: on its head (laughs) right hey uh hey what's it called god god tube god god film uh net net god whatever the christian streaming service cineflix what's it called i think it's called cineflix right all right well whoever made (laughs) whoever made the film whatever production company made the film god's not dead uh where this re- in anyway i'm not going to talk about god's not dead it makes me mad um <laughs> this company needs to uh kurt cameron uh and this company i don't know if kurt cameron's associated with it or not but i'm just gonna throw him in there you need to quit making art because you're not good at it uh your movies are bad and you should all feel bad and you're ruining it for everyone else end of speech Thank you for coming episode to my Talk. Episode 29,
1: the seventh curse episode, where we take a look at the state of cinema and use the seventh curse as our jumping off point to attack everyone in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jack's
0: not wrong. Dude, just, <laughs> just be okay with it. Like, if you don't want to see it, then don't fucking see it. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Caleb, I feel like I've put my two cents to Colin's Soapbox. Anything you want to add?
2: Yeah, I don't on my watch of the seventh curse, I did not interpret a (laughs) political ideology, (laughs) political associate. Like I didn't get that. Um, It could be there. I'd want to, you know, here I'd want to read maybe about the relationship creators of the story. What was their vision for the conflict did it have deeper layers? For sure. So
1: yeah, I didn't, I didn't interpret any racist undertones. But I would make the argument that a lot of what Colin's hitting at, if a film like The Seventh Curse, which is under 90 minutes, it's kind of intended as a silly, cheesy, very B-movie, lots of gore, effects, fighting, not very heavy on the narrative, if a film
0: like this got Colin to think about those things, I think that's a win. Oh, for sure. I for sure think so too. Maybe I should start watching more. Would you? Okay, I do have a, a separate question that's almost entirely unrelated to racism or boobies and titties and dicks and all that stuff. Um, is do you consider this isn't a kung fu style movie? Like you wouldn't liken a movie like this to say Hero or or Enter the Dragon or Enter the Yeah, yeah okay.
1: It just, I, I think it uses... there are elements of the kung fu action genre here, okay. but I think this is much more of an action horror, even comedy. Okay,
0: that's okay,
1: because this is kind of one of those hodgepodge cocktails of a bunch of different popular genres, right? Into creating something very unique.
0: And I haven't seen a, like a wire kung fu movie in a while. Like the last one I saw, legit, was probably Hero when I was in high school. It's a good movie.
1: I think it also has Maggie Chung in it, I think. Oh, does it really? <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think she plays one of the main characters. Nice. Yeah, it is. I just looked it up. She is. So- and then uh, Donnie Yen from uh, Rogue One's in it, too. That's one of his big oh, early films. Oh,
0: yes. Man, I feel yeah. like I need to watch. Uh, go back and watch some of these kung fu movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Enter the Drag, and even some of the older ones like Enter the Dragon... Uh, cause they're just fun. I mean, it, they. You can put it on. You can check out for a little bit. You get to watch some really awesome fight scenes and, and choreography. And it, it is it unrealistic? Absolutely, it is. Jesus Christ! But it's just it's fun. It ignores. Oh man, it doesn't get caught up on dumb little things like plot or realism or gravity. <laughs> Like, who cares? No, I'm I'm totally tracking with Colin's
1: saying. Because I I think, Colin, what you're hitting at is very much this interplay of what we as a podcast want to watch, too. Because I approach a film like Song to Song thinking, this isn't Colin's cup of tea. I'm not necessarily showing this to him because I think he's going to love it. I'm showing this to him because I love it, and I want him to see something I love. But with something like The Seventh Curse, there is this middle ground area where, you know, you have your Thor Ragnarok's on your side, and I have my Malick films on my side, and we can, like, set those aside and shake hands and have an epic moment and be like, Kung Fu movies, let's go. And I think that's important, because I don't want this podcast to necessarily be, oh, my movies rock, Caleb movies suck, da da, 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 da. I want it to be, well, let's find some of the movies we as a podcast come together on, too. So I really appreciate you saying
0: that. Yeah, man, I, I, I think I'm talking this movie's rating up a little bit for myself. I... I genuinely, truly had such a such a good time. Such a good time with this movie. Man, it's just fun. <laughs> and going back to kind of what you
1: said too about this idea of, oh, you know, maybe I just want to see these things. Maybe I don't need a big, deep story. But the reality is, is there are filmmakers out there like the Wachowskis, who sat down, and watched these old kung fu movies, and thought, "Okay, how do we put that into something like The Matrix, like our future?"
0: World? Right? How do we put this crazy, awesome spectacle into a movie that also has a strong plot, good characters, good, right? Well, oh, I won't child say- sacrifice. Yeah, child <laughs> sacrifice, <laughs> <Bye-bye>. vaginas. <laughs>
1: Uh, so it's one of those things where it's like you don't only get a bigger cultural context for the art of filmmaking but you also get a little film history in there as well right. and see how other artists are influenced by stuff like this.
0: Oh yeah. I don't wanna, I don't want to I don't want to say something like oh the seventh curse is the mo- is an influential movie and movies were inspired right, by it. Right, right, right. That's, like, that's fair, that's fair. Because I feel like that's probably not the case. Right. No, I, I get what you're saying. We don't want to hype this movie up too yeah. much. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to say, oh, this is a, a cultural revolution. you got to see it. Every person in the world should see this movie. That is not true. But for a movie under 90 minutes, there's a lot to get out of it that I think can be a good kind of gateway drug to other films of this style. Yeah, do you like... When he was dumping blood on the old ancestor coffin and all of that, like that's very clearly paint or 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 you right, know like right. cornstarch and and red dye. Like it's not blood, uh, and it's not. I don't think it's necessarily meant to feel or look like blood. It's it's just a uh, a a representation of oh boy, <laughs> imagine if this was real. <laughs> you know what I mean. Man.
1: Caleb, Colin and I have really been talking this movie up, and I think I'm really happy Colin got a lot out of it, and I definitely love this film. Are there any kind of topics of conversation you want to pull up, hit on so Colin and I can get a bit of a breather? <laughs> yeah.
2: So I kinda wanna share something that I didn't really care for. And it's mm. you know, a lot of, a lot of the times this is something I'm kinda go I'm kinda working through is when I watch movies. And they do a flashback, a backstory <laughs> yeah. scene. They started the this. the narrative, or the journey, and then, oh, we got to go back a second. We forgot to tell you something. Oh my gosh, Caleb, almost, we get it.
0: You hate Six
2: Underground. I almost wish that they had started with the backstory, and then it cuts to the, what was it, like a hostage situation at the beginning of the of the film?
1: I'm sorry, um, Caleb. Colin got me with that Six I don't know why that made me laugh so far. But but no, but, keep going, Caleb. But I'm that's what I don't
2: like about it. Six Underground. Yeah, I know. it's, it's know. Just like I Rarely do I find a <laughs> movie that uses flashbacks well. And I don't know how you do it well. And I've yet to find an example of, of a moment. Well, I'll say this. <laughs> Technically, there are flashbacks in the social network. but yeah no that's a good example yeah i like But it's used differently like it's 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 not a traditional flashback because of how it's cut in with 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 the
0: deposition anyway (laughs) caleb i thought the caleb wants his flashbacks to be uh you know, Nickelodeon, Drake and Josh style, where Drake comes in and he's all beat up and he's covered in bruises, and I'm like, Drake, what happened? And he goes, It all started last week. Man, what a reference Colin. <gasps> and confused. then it fades and this guy the screen gets all wobbly and it fades back. That's what Caleb wants.
2: No, that is actually sure Drake not what I watched
0: yesterday. So that's a good reference.
1: That is an
2: example of a bad flashback <laughs> or bad use of flashback.
1: So I have two things I want to respond to Caleb with because I don't disagree with you, Caleb. But at the end of the day, this is an 80 minute movie with a 20 minute flashback in it. Yeah, but yeah, here's the but thing: you're right, Jack. Like by the time yeah, the flashback's yeah. over, you're halfway through the movie. I'm going to give you a little sneak peek at what's to come in this episode because when we get to Too Lazy, I'm going to recommend to you a movie that I think does the flashback thing really well in a Ah. really cynical and nihilistic and fucked up way. So get ready for that when that comes. I'm excited for that. (laughs) But I think the logic behind why they open with the whole police procedural siege raid on the hostage situation is because you want to open your film with a bang. That's how the film opens. You see all the cops coming, you see all the guys with guns, you see all of that before any of our major characters come up. And I get the logic of opening in chronological order, but sometimes these filmmakers think, you know, we need to open with something cool, something exciting. People like Raiders of the Lost Ark because it opens with ten minutes of just silence and Indiana Jones going through the traps and all that scary stuff. So, I think the logic is less trying to disorient or confuse the viewer and more of we want to open up something exciting.
2: Well, I don't feel disoriented or confused okay, by, by their fair. decision or the editing decision, how they piece this together. And I, and I'll, again, I'll, I'm going to go back to my point about how it's all rise. This is a movie where there's a lot of great – like enticing scenes that are filled with action filled with intrigue they could have taken any number of these scenes and put them at the beginning and hooked the viewer i don't think that they were struggling for that yeah i think it's the and it's not even the linearity of the story it's something about it feels like like an awkward like jarring use of a flashback I don't know how to describe it. And That's the thing. I'm trying to figure out, like, why do I not care for flashbacks and how they use these in stories,
1: um, and I haven't quite figured that out. And that's this part. This of the might theory. be one of those classic long-term discussion points. We'll put a pin in, and then yeah, we'll come back approach it again this. next time you and
0: Colin argue about Pixar. <laughs> next time we argue about Pixar. Oh my, oh my god, Pixar. You know, this movie actually reminded me of a scene in uh, Inside Out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> in Soul, where... Uh- no, I'm-
1: All right. Well, this has been a good discussion. I didn't know, if, since we were talking about a shorter film today, if the discussion would be on the shorter side, but you guys have brought some good stuff to the table. I like it. I like it. Let's go ahead and transition into final thoughts before we close out with ratings. Caleb, do you want to give any final thoughts for The Seventh Curse?
2: Honestly, I came into this, I didn't have a lot to say. I had a few points, which is why I'm glad I had some space to latch on to some broader conversation pieces surrounding the industry of cinema. Scorsese, we all love talking about Martin Scorsese. Christians. Some other other topics, (laughs) yeah. So thank you, Colin, for entertaining entertaining me and Jack. (laughs) Shout out to both of y'all. Uh, avid listeners of the podcast.
1: Lol, um, I do
0: have to listen to my own podcast. For yeah, sure. yeah, right. Sure. That way we have at least three uh, listens per podcast. Yeah. <laughs> There's just so much calling in my head. Ah! Get him out! Get him out! Fuck. Yeah, but anyway, no, no.
2: But for real, on on topic of the seventh curse, Colin's right as as he usually will be about practical effects. That's what got me super into this movie. Was how they designed the set, did the effects, and kept the action building the whole time. I just couldn't believe it that they just kept and kept going, and I enjoyed that a lot. It is really an, an entertainment action spectacle,
0: big time. All right, Colin. Final thoughts, dude. Hundred miles an hour, thousand miles an hour, ten thousand miles an hour. T- Ten decillion miles an hour. <laughs> Caleb gets that reference. <laughs> cookie, cookie. Anyway, uh, but dude, I, I, I think I'm. I think I just. I think I just might love this movie. Aw, excellent, excellent choice, Jack. See, I got
1: him a song to song, which he didn't like. And now he loved this movie, so the next time I get to pick a film, I think he'll hit... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I'm actually... I think I'm approaching it from the perspective of, I wanted to do two films I love, like, and then a film I've never seen that I think would be fun to talk about with you guys. So, I'm going to pull Six Underground next time and pull a film that I've never seen before. Nice. Jack, what about you? Final thoughts? Yeah, this is the type of film that four or five years ago... I don't think I would have really appreciated I would have been like, oh, it's cheesy, it's dumb, it's silly. And now that I'm older and I'm wiser and I've broadened my horizons to the type of cinema I enjoy, I'm totally on board with what Colin was saying about old kung fu films and just finding a lot of films with over-the-top action where you can just kind of sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. And that's what this was. This was a great show. It was so enjoyable. A great time to watch. Hot actors, cool effects, scary monsters, lots of blood, gore, violence. Good, good time. Can't recommend it enough. Hot actors, indeed. Mm, mm. Chow Yun Fat, thank you. Thank you so much, (laughs) Avid Listener of the Podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. (laughs) And shout out to Chow Yun Cat.
0: I know you're out there listening. (laughs) All right, Colin, you want to lead us in ratings? I most certainly do. Let uh, Let me set the scene for us here.
1: Set in the Jack,
0: you've been uh you've been uh cursed by a by a tribe oh. Oh, no. with a blood curse and uh, the cat tribe. I, I know, and and all of a sudden you know you start to feel this severe pain in in your leg. You know it's just and it your veins are popping out. And you're like ah, I'm get water on my leg. Ah. <laughs> And then all the The cat tribe is turning me into a cat. And then all of a sudden, uh, a little uh, uh, assist, a blister pops up on your leg. And then more blisters start coming up. Jack, how many of those blood blisters are you going to pop?
1: This is one I kind of have a hard time with going back between four and four and a half, but you know. Good time, good vibes, this podcast.
0: I'm loving it. We're going four and a half blisters, baby. Four and a half blisters. Nice, 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 nice. Okay, so, Caleb. Same situation. You've been cursed. Okay. (laughs) Same exact thing. I don't know how they managed to get both of you in the same day, but they did. Okay. Poor Caleb. Poor Caleb. So, you made it a little bit further than Jack. You're all the way in Thailand. You're climbing up a Buddha statue uh, but for some reason, this Buddha statue has five eyes that all have a magical substance in them that you're going to have to swallow <laughs> whole. That is way too big to swallow whole. But you got to swallow, uh, you know, there's five of them. Now, here's the question. How many of those eyeballs are you swallowing? Dang, okay. Swallow, <laughs> swallow, swallow. That is a good swallow.
2: point. I didn't, I didn't even realize how... Um... How
1: <laughs> how large the how things like, that they had to swallow
2: you know, in this movie how were how like uncomfortable I felt in the scene where he had to swallow that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're <laughs> I was there with you, Caleb. Yeah. I definitely felt that too. <laughs> yeah. But I'm gonna swallow three
0: out of the five. Three, dang, son. Alright, well uh so I'm the leader of the tribe who cursed both of you. Uh, and in order to really uh, get these curses the way that I want them, I really got to sacrifice children. I mean, children blood is just Uh-oh. at a higher Uh-oh. premium than <laughs> any other type of blood. Now, I can sacrifice up to five children for maximum potency, but, you know, children, they're hard to kidnap. They're hard to come by. So, you know, I think I'm I'm going to sacrifice uh, uh, four and a half of those children. I'm going to cut it. I'm going to bisect one of the kids. I'm going to mail the legs back to their family that way they can have a piece of the kid back. Four and a half children.
1: Very nice Kong. And that makes me very happy that you love this film. That's that's a huge win. Man. Four and a- oh boy. What a what a
0: movie, dude. What a movie. It's good, good,
1: good. Real quick before we move on to Too Lazy, I have to ask cuz, you know, sometimes I've wins, King of New York, Seventh Curse, but I do have losses too. Which one I think I've asked you this before, but which one infuriated you more? Once Upon a Time in the West or Song to Song? Song to Song. I have to know. It's got to be Song to Song, dude. Okay. Because Upon- <laughs> I feel like you talked more positively about Song to
0: Song on that episode than you did about... But then again, maybe it's just because we've been doing this for a while. Ah, now, dude, so you know what? Time. Who am I kidding? I hated Once Upon a Time in the West, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was trying to talk it up a little bit just now. You're right. I, I can at least appreciate <clears throat> what Song to Song was trying to do. And, boy, once upon a time in the West, I... They can't all be zingers. They can't
1: all be zingers. (laughs) Alright, well I'm going to open up Too Lazy to log on Letterboxd with the film that Caleb had me watch. See, last time we had a big challenge, and while I did well at the beginning, started off strong in our challenge, eventually I... Tripped, messed up, goofed, and it was over. Caleb won. You done messed up, Jack. I done messed up. And for his prize, he got to pick the movie that I was going to watch for today's section of Too Lazy. And with this power, Caleb had the opportunity to pick a movie to bring me joy, to make me happy, to provide me with a cinematic experience that would not only put a large smile on my stupid face, but also strengthen my weak Routine with the great warmth and beauty that would lift me up and push my spirit Dang, Jack throughout my out. work week. He prepared this to hop into a higher level of positivity and wonder. Unfortunately, Caleb picked Requiem for a Dream. Yikes! <laughs> Yikes! Uh oh! This movie depressing AF. My goodness, I had been warned. People had told me, they were like, get ready, it's a trip, get ready. It's it's. I'm like, wow, what an intense experience. For those who don't know, this is the second film by director Darren Aronofsky, came out in 2000, and it stars Ellen Bernstein, Jared Leto, Marlon Waynes, and Jennifer Conley as these four individuals. Whoa, Whoa,
0: whoa, 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 whoa. Marlon Waynes? Yeah, yeah. What?
1: Yeah, he's in Requiem <laughs> for a Dream.
0: Bruh. Okay.
1: He <laughs> <Colin's laughs> like, over your like watch Maybe this. I actually should watch this movie. <laughs> but let me warn you something Colin. These four actors, these four characters, this is a movie about addiction. Specifically drug addiction, but it's about these characters as they try to accomplish their ambitions in life and their struggles with How drug addiction kind of fuels their journey, but also destroys them as they go through a very intense trip to hell and is one of the the most intense movie experiences I think I've ever watched. This film was a lot, and shout out to these four actors, because this is a depressing movie, it's an intense movie, there's a lot going on here, and it gets really dark really fast, I think the actors sold it really well. This is also based off the book by, I think the writers, oh, Hubert Selby Jr., and uh, Selby actually wrote a script for the movie years before this came out, but then once Aronofsky was starting to get big, he eventually teamed up and they rewrote the script, yada yada. So this was kind of something that was a big work, a big piece of independent filmmaking for turn of the 20th century art filmmaking style. And I, I want to emphasize something that, yes, this movie is depressing. This movie is a lot. But kind of the selling point of this movie is definitely its style. Definitely the vibes and tone it goes for. The big drawing point that a lot of people point out with this movie is that Aronofsky wanted it to look like a hip-hop music video. And it's the whole, oh, most movies have to 800 cuts, but Requiem Dream has 2,000-plus cuts. Because every time the characters shoot up and do a drug they go through this really intense close-up editing where, oh, the pill pop, the pill bottle pops up, or, oh, the heroin needle goes in and just happens really fast. You see their eyes, like, expand. And it almost gets to the point of gimmicky, but I really can't stress enough how intense and cool the editing is in this film. It's very in-your-face, and it feels very surreal in a way that I think few films can pull off. The other thing about this film that I think is worth noticing ...is the freaking score. This score is phenomenal. And I've heard this score before. The Clint Manziel score for Requiem of a Dream is one of those scores that I think everybody has heard at one point or another... ...but they never quite realized where it came from, and it is such a good score. So, for me, even though I definitely can recognize that this film is super dark and just a lot to handle on an emotional level... It really is well done in the combination of how great the editing is and how strong Manzel's score is that he works on. Caleb, I've kind of been going off on this movie. I don't know if I like it, love it, hate it, whatever. Why don't you talk a little bit about your experience? Nah, Jack, I can
2: movie. tell it was impactful, whether for better or worse, because of how much thought you get. You just gave that, and how
1: you presented that. That was that was spectacular. And, and like I genuinely don't know if I like or hate, love or hate this movie or not. Like I feel very
2: yeah. So Colin, there's part of me know. that thinks that like Riz Ahmed had to have like studied Requiem for a Dream and how these actors portrayed addiction because wow. I think that Riz Ahmed like captures something that Requiem for a Dream captures with with these character um specific stories about being addicted to specific drugs. I don't know what you think about that, Jack, but I think there is definitely a No, I,
1: I love, love, love where you're going with that because that's kind of one of the biggest flaws I have with Requiem for a Dream is how it approaches its themes and topics. Okay. Because here's the thing, and we talked about this last time of Sound of Metal or two episodes ago or whatever, Sound of Metal is about addiction without necessarily being about addiction. Right, right. There's never a point in Riz Ahmed's journey in the movie where you see him take drugs. Yeah, but but you can tell it's affected his life. Right, right. As Colin described, Colin did a good job of describing that. You can see it in his mannerisms and how he acts. And that's the thing. Sound of Metal has those subtleties that I think really work well on a screenwriting level. That Requiem for a Dream kind of doesn't have. Okay. So what I'm trying to say here is, even though I love the craft and filmmaking that went behind Requiem for a Dream and how the sound and audio and editing, how it created this really surreal and dangerous and horrifying experience, I definitely am not in love with the script, with the narrative of Requiem for a Dream. And I get it. This is one of those films where the easy criticism to give Requiem for a Dream is, oh, it's the drug movie. Oh, drugs are bad. Oh. And I think this movie is saying a little bit more than that, especially with a lot of Ellen Bernstein's character and her whole, oh, I need to be on TV because it's going to reconnect these feelings that I once had and I can share them with the world and everyone wants to be on TV. You get that with Conley's character and how she wants to get into fashion design. You see that with Wayne's character and how... He has these childlike memories of just wanting to be with his mom and feel that protection that he no longer feels. I definitely think there is subtext going on here that makes this more than, ooh, the drugs are bad movie. But I don't always think it works in a way that's very subtle. And I yeah. can see why it would be alienating for viewers.
2: So I will say that the in terms of characters and story, that Alan Burstein's character I think is the most dynamic. Like the most, right, was The most right. fascinating to view, but but that was also complemented with some of the effects that happened on screen for, for her, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna spoil any of that for Colin, because it's so vivid, it's so imaginative, so it, like, this is fucked up, <laughs> like that, like that oh, kind yeah, of oh stuff. Oh yeah, oh yeah, like, that's what made it so so much more interesting to me than the like. Really harsh, depressing experience that Jared Leto had to put on the screen. Yeah, that was Oh my gosh, I'm I'm starting to remember. Well, some, on the topic of shots Colin, of Jared Leto. I think Colin.
1: Would, <laughs> I I think on the topic of Colin, Colin would love the sound design in this movie. Oh yeah, it it's top notch. It's doubt. some of the best I've ever heard. Like I really can't stress it enough. On a formal level, Requiem for a Dream is incredible. It's very very yeah. good. Now, Colin, I don't know if you should watch this with Catherine. But that being said, Fair enough. you're gonna have a good time with the sound design.
0: Ooh, sound design. Yeah. I like I like stuff that has <laughs> good sound design.
1: I like sounds. Oh,
0: I um. like yeah, I like sound. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Man. What a movie. That sounds terrible, Jack.
1: <laughs> I, I wouldn't I wouldn't write it off, Colin, but I definitely like There's a reason I haven't watched this yet, but now that I have watched it, I'm happy to say that I, A, didn't rush into this movie, and B, it kind of lived up to expectations. Like, I really didn't go into this film with the most positive, oh, this is going to be a masterpiece. Oh, I've heard people trash talk this film. Here's the funny thing about Aronofsky. (laughs) Aronofsky is one of those contemporary auteurs who... (laughs) A lot of the people in the film world whose critical opinions I trust they hate Aronofsky. All my homies hate Aronofsky. They don't like him, they don't like his style, they don't like how he is kind of wishy-washy about his influence, whether or not he's ripping off of old Italian horror films, or Satoshi Kone, yada yada, but all the people in real life I know who like Aronofsky, they're some of the nicest freaking people. They're so nice to me, and they're like, oh yeah, Noah was a masterpiece, I love Mother, these are great movies, and I'm kind of like, you know, like, I'm not gonna argue or debate with you, you're very nice, but it's just it's always been fascinating for me that my life's gone off in this trail where all my homies hate Aronofsky, but then the nice people I know really like her It's really funny, but I get why people put Requiem for a Dream up there with Black Swan on the higher end of his filmography because it was definitely a good film, even though I kind of hated it. Yeah. Yeah, because think, a, a lot of that is, oh
2: my gosh, like I'm feeling these horrible things about what's going on with these characters. And yeah, like I dreaded that. Like there's this feeling of dread, but like that's how you know that Aronofsky did a really good job. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's funny because last time I talked about Tenet and Crimes of Grindelwald being the penultimate two and a half star film. I think this is the penultimate three-star film for me. Wait,
2: wait a second. <laughs> okay, Jack, <laughs> it's not
1: that low of a rating.
2: <laughs> There's no way.
1: <laughs> what Requiem for a Dream? Yeah. What would you give it? What was your rating?
2: I. It's a lot better than three stars. <laughs> oh my gosh.
1: And that's okay. Like some of my favorite critics gave this four and a half stars. I.
2: It's in the... Yeah, it's closer to four and a half for me. That's for sure. How about
1: this? I'll bump it up to three and a half. We'll make it a nice guy. <laughs> okay. <sighs> I, right. I just think this film put me in such a dark, intense place that yeah. it's not really something I'm dying to recommend to people the way I would... Well, yeah, like but a
2: star curves. rating is not based on... It's not a scale from wouldn't recommend to recommend to everyone,
1: in, in, in my mind I, I like where you're going with this and I think this is less of a would I recommend it or not because I, I get what you're saying those are easy trappings to fall into and more of a these are my own personal shortcomings sure. with how I interact and view this film do I think this film is a great piece of art? yes do I like this film? I don't really know like, like a good example is you hear that lame argument of, oh, this film was all style over substance, which I know for a fact people have thrown at this movie because it's Aronofsky sure. and this is very much an intense formal experience. The thing with something like *Requiem for a Dream is it's almost all style. The style is kind of the point to get you in a certain mode, a certain right. feeling, which from an artistic standpoint, I really love and respect. My problem is that... I don't want to go too much into spoiler territory here, but to a certain degree, Colin, close your ears for 10 seconds, I almost think this film is more cruel to its characters because none of them die at the end. And that might sound fucked up, but I think this film is so dark that the place all four characters end up at the end of this film is basically hell. Like, I mean, it yeah, it's worst. almost like it's there's horrible. no
2: catharsis for any of them. It's kind of like if, if Howie hadn't died, right, at the end of Uncut
1: Gems. Oh, I think it's way worse than that. I think yeah. it's, there, there is something pure, like, heart-wrenching, just dark, dark, dark about where these characters end up. Oh, for sure. Like, it's so bad. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that on a personal level for me, from both a pathological standpoint and kind of what I'm looking for to get out of this narrative, it just didn't put me in a good place that makes me want to give it a higher rating, if that makes sense.
2: And I'm saying that because it puts you in that place, it was a smash hit. It was a success because Aronofsky was able to make you feel that way, put you in that place upon viewing his film.
1: Honestly, I respect that, Caleb. I think that's a good take and... Maybe I will bump it up to three and a half. There, there's, there's been some persuasion going on here. Caleb's a very charismatic. We call him Caleb, charismatic Caleb, back in the old days. And I, th- I think you're on to something. I, I don't quite agree with you, but I do admit that I'm tracking with where you're going on.
2: Yeah, this. and Jack, you have to admit there there is a lot of substances in this movie. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That was uh, a very awful but very amazing joke. I, I approve. I and approve. that is when Caleb got fired from the podcast.
1: Yes. <laughs> Paul, and you and I have said way worse things. That's
0: true.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey, to quote Catherine, Caleb's the funniest person on the podcast. He doesn't even try.
0: <laughs>
1: Thank you, Catherine. <laughs> now, earlier, Caleb, I kind of hinted that I wanted to recommend a movie that if you like Requiem and Dream, I think you would like this. Very, very different film. But there's a lot of similar ideas going on, and I am am going to be that cheap arm-in-white mode of, don't watch Requiem for a Dream, watch this movie. And this movie I want to recommend to you, Caleb, is the 2002 Roger Avery film, The Rules of Attraction. It used to be okay. on Hulu, I don't know if it still is. But there are a lot of similar ideas going on as far as the concept of abuse and addiction with drugs, kind of playing into the mindset of the young people, multiple perspectives. It does some chronological linearity stuff that I'd be interested to get your take on. This is a film that Daisy and I sat down to watch, and she absolutely hated it. Thinks it's one of the worst movies ever, and I really enjoyed it. But I admit that it was very dark and made me very uncomfortable in a way that wasn't quite as intense for Raccoon for a Dream, but it definitely gave me a similar vibe. So I would really recommend the Roger Avery film, The Rules of Attraction, to you.
2: Okay, I'll look into this,
1: Caleb. Before we move on, do you have any final thoughts you want to say about Requiem for a Dream?
2: Nothing that wouldn't be spoilers. Should I just take my um, headphones
0: off at this point and just let you no. guys talk about Requiem for a Dream for a little? Well, bit? we're we're gonna talk about it more in the future. We
1: we got for some sure. surprises coming for our audience, I mean, so don't worry. This I mean, is not Colin, the last.
2: It's and this is what Jack told me while he was watching this movie. Okay. He said, like, oh, yeah, I've definitely heard, like, this score before. You said something like that, Jack. And it's very possible, Colin, that you're going to, if you ever watch this, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, I've, I've heard these sounds. I've heard this music before. It's, it's that good that it's, like, seeped its way into, like, popular
1: music from film. Okay. Oh, I, I can't stress enough. The score is not only the best part of this film – but it's probably the best thing in any Aronofsky film, period. Definitely one of the finest pieces of a film score, film music in any film from the 21st century. It is phenomenal. Yeah. And the
2: editing, like, oh my gosh. You need I'm to like watch movie for the score alone, in my opinion. I'm like remembering how they edit based on, like, okay, what kind of drug are they using? And the edits, like, complement the effect of the drug in a really like I don't know I don't know what the right word in a really engaging way for the viewer because it makes you and that's golly this is why I think it's such a good movie is like it is too real almost like it's at the point where I'm starting to feel the way that this person is feeling taking
1: this drug because of how it's done visually. Yeah, I, I'm gonna. I like where we're kind of closing this at. Caleb, you're hitting on some good stuff. But before we move on, I want to say one last thing about Requiem for a Dream. Okay. So on this podcast, we've talked about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining from 1980. And I've talked a little bit about how, to a certain degree, The Shining is almost too much as far as its influence on a certain current state of cinema goes when it comes to the whole A24 perfect shot you know that one perfect shot we gotta get on instagram twitter and i definitely think requiem for a dream very much falls into that same category of a really dark intense movie that is beautiful and gorgeous to look at that's impossible not to see how other filmmakers who've come later have been inspired by it yeah like i definitely see the a24 guys in a lab like they've dissected the shining they've dissected requiem for a dream going over the shots How, how do we do this how do we repeat this and I think to a certain degree, that is why so many people kind of harp on this film. And they're like, oh, Wrecking for Dream's overrated. It's a college dorm poster movie. Da-da-da-da-da. Which I've never met anybody with a poster for Wrecking for Dream. So, whatever. But that being said, I left this movie thinking, I'm surprised that people hate it as much as they do.
2: Yeah. That's surprising to me. I mean, it's surprising to me that you gave it three stars. And that's... That's, a. Uh...
1: And don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong, this is definitely the classic scenario of it. This film does have a 4.1 average rating, so yeah. it's not like people really hate this film the way they hate, you know, a masterpiece like Phantom Menace or something, but, <laughs> <laughs> but but, my point is, is I'm the type of guy, I'm that type of asshole who gives films like this three stars all the time, but I'm surprised so many people give this one
0: stars, who I follow. Now
2: that's, around. that's ridiculous. That is just. I
0: can't wait till I absurd. watch this movie, and give it one star.
2: <laughs> no, like Colin you're, Colin, you're not gonna give
1: it one star. <laughs> challenge so, accepted. So, Colin, I definitely want you to watch this so I can get your thoughts on it. But, but I do. You need get ready. Like, get ready. It's 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 gonna. You're gonna want to lie down after. Yeah, you're
2: gonna want to be able to process
1: this movie, Colin. Dang. Yeah, it's it's heavy. But anyways, like we hinted at earlier, we have a surprise coming up in the next coming episodes, so there will definitely be more talk about Requiem for a Dream, as well as some other movies that came out around this time, but we'll just leave you in suspense as we get ready for that. Moving on a little bit, if if that's okay with you two gentlemen. For sure. If Requiem for a Dream by Darren Aronofsky was a film that left me in such a dark place, and I was like, oh, I wish I was dead, Caleb over here... (laughs) Was getting ready. He was recruiting. He was enlisting. Time to look at the Army. The Army of the Dead. Directed by Zack Snyder from 2021. Caleb, tell us a little bit about Snyder's latest with our boy Dave Bautista. Dave Bautista. I
2: I gotta say that Snyder really capitalized on the hype surrounding the Snyder cut for the release of Army of the Dead. Did he really?
0: How so? Because...
2: Yeah, because there was so much hype for Army of the Dead, and that came from a place of, oh, the Snyder Cut just came out. This was a huge, you know, victory for people of cinema that care about voicing their opinions and getting the industry to do what they want.
1: Um, it is funny to think this is the first time we're actually talking about the Snyder Cut.
2: <laughs> yeah, and then he, you know, announces army of the dead and it's got all this hype the trailer makes it look like it's going to be this really cool taking the zombie apocalypse to the next level at least that's how i felt in the interpretations from the hype surrounding it and man it did not live up to that (laughs) at all (laughs) Um, don't get me wrong i had a good time like it was fun watching army of the dead because you had such a in my opinion, you had a strong cast. Some would say it's not a well put together cast, but I think they're all they're all unique, they're all creative, and Dave Batista is a strong lead.
1: Amen. Now, that was one thing I was going to kind of comment on too, Caleb. Is apart from Batista, who's definitely someone with a lot of rising star power, this is mostly, I don't know if I would call them unknowns, but they're not, you know, big name actors yeah. that I mean. So I kind of that was something that intrigued me about the film, was a very smaller, not-as-famous ensemble. That definitely intrigued me about this movie Yeah,
2: that is, it is a lot of unknowns. I think that's a fair way of putting it. I think some of them are better than others, but I think they work together. F- for For a movie that lets you down... They worked. It worked really well.
0: For a movie that lets you down, yikes, bro. Yeah,
1: Caleb, you sound pretty underwhelmed. Do you want to kind of explain what might have happened? Where the yeah, expectations so I had. Got I honestly had a strong first impression
2: because I remember I watched this with some friends, and afterwards, I was the only one of the three of us that actually had some positive things to say. But as time's gone on, I've been like, man, like, I don't really care to revisit this movie. Like, I'm not. I'm not going to try to watch this again anytime soon.
1: <laughs> now hold um, the phone there, Caleb. Is this the same group of friends that was trash-talking our boy John Waters and Serial Mom? We got to know.
2: No, it's not the
1: same group. It's not the same group. Yeah, yeah. those people can all
0: jump in a lake. Jeez, dude. <laughs> going to sacrifice them to, to the, the, <laughs> the <time. yeah.
2: laughs>
0: I'm going to put him in the press. I'm going <laughs> to...
2: So, and here's the other kicker with this movie. Is... I didn't know this going in. This was a surprise. I started watching this, and I was like, kind of b- b- bewildered because this is, to the script, this is a heist movie. Everything, they followed the formula. It is the heistiest of heist movies that you can watch. Dang. Um, in, in, a, in a bad way. In a like, bad way Uh (laughs) uh-oh interesting Uh (laughs) uh-oh and i already don't like heist movies so it lost points pretty early on for me but i gave it the benefit of the doubt i was like you know i'm gonna give snyder's chance maybe he's coming in and he's gonna do something uh innovative
1: with the heist genre did he but he he really didn't he really didn't So, from a certain perspective, I could see someone with, like, a more cynical view of Snyder in this film. Oh, it's just zombie apocalypse, but it's a heist movie. Is that kind of what plays out in the end? Yes.
2: But here's where the answer to that is tricky. Because the most interesting, the best parts about this movie are all taking place within Las Vegas. So... To set the scene for y'all, this is like the World War Z style of, oh, no, zombie apocalypse is broken out. Let's try to contain it. And they managed to contain it all in Las Vegas. So they have these massive walls constructed around the city of Las Vegas. All okay. these zombies are unrealistically trapped in las
1: vegas because (laughs) that's what i call subtext right there oh all the zombies are trapped in las vegas yeah (laughs) it's just like real life Ah! (laughs) i've been to vegas i'm sorry i've seen the casinos Uh, blackjack turns me into a no but i'm sorry cale i didn't mean to cut you off you're good
2: good. because these zombies these aren't like your anyway i'm not gonna go there i'm not i'm gonna move on What makes everything that happens within Las Vegas interesting is, you know, it is is a wasteland. Like, it's been Mm -hmm, destroyed. mm -hmm. Zack Snyder managed to create a group of zombies that are more intelligent than the typical, you know, Walking Dead. I'm just strolling around eating whatever I can find, any human flesh I can find. They have like a culture. They have a, like, they're, they're a people. And Dang. that was super fascinating. Also, there's a zombie tiger and horse, and I think it looks really cool. There's a lot of things there that, like, pra- practical setters could right? have spent time on. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like practical <laughs> effects. The tiger is for sure CGI, by the way. Like, that's not a. Aw, oh, bummer. A tiger. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, sounds like <laughs> I'll hate it. the common theme of this episode (laughs) like snyder had the opportunity to really flesh out this zombie world that he's created and spoilers spoilers he's gonna have the opportunity to do so he's left himself a cliffhanger for that it's likely that he's gonna be able to expand this zombie
0: world culture that he's created Army of Dead Zero, the prequel.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Colin, if it makes you feel any better, whether CGI Tigers or not, you were never going to watch this movie. This bad boy is 148 minutes long. Oh, no. It's pretty long. Which I think is worth noting, because whether you're on the fence or not about this film, and I don't know if Caleb's sold you whether or not you want to watch it, that length is pretty long. And that's always been one of my personal criticisms of Snyder. I, I like his films for the most part, but... Man that that boy likes to make them long. <laughs> yeah. I saw the run time on the Snyder cut. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, dude, who's got who has time for that? <laughs> Literally everybody's like, "Jack, what did you think of the Snyder cut?" Jackie I told me. I'm like, "Guys, like I, I don't have time. I barely had time to watch Once Upon a Time in America and that bad boy was over 4 hours long."
2: <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not I'm definitely not trying to sell you on this movie. The entire heist, you know, the big what they're going after is their their time constraint is because America on the Fourth of July is gonna nuke Las Vegas as like this epic on like, the
0: Fourth of July. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's in yeah. America. Big and well, proud. like to do? Like that? Like, what? Movies. I'm watching this movie, dude. You just sold me. <laughs> wow. That's, I keep throwing. On, I'll
1: watch it with you. You should watch
0: this. What a
1: con! If you watch it, let me know. I'll come over. Ace. <laughs> what a
0: what a plot. <laughs> Jeez, uh. bro. Oh lord, I love that. That's incredible. How could you not love that? Uh. Meanwhile, Caleb's so Kay, look, like, uh. apart from the fact that you didn't really care for the
1: heist movie shenanigans, yeah, and the kind of lack of potential that goes on with the world building. Were there any other highs or lows with this movie that you think really stood out?
2: Yeah, highs were for sure. Dave Bautista and his dynamic with his daughter was a big high for me.
1: That makes me happy to hear because I really love Batista. We talked about this in the Infinity War episode, but I think he is easily the best, top three at least, but maybe even the best part Um, of going to see MCU movies. I love Batista; He's great.
2: Yeah, I'll add that most of the time, the zombie fighting and killing is, you know, if you screw that up, you're, it's de- like, why are you even trying anymore?
1: <laughs> why are you even here? <laughs> like you
2: make a zombie movie and then screw up killing zombies. Like that would be a tragedy of Amen. some of the worst kind. <laughs> um, so you have to do it, do it well. Now there is a character. I don't remember if he's Swedish or German but this dude is one of my favorite characters in this movie. He is like s- such a lovable guy, the kind of person that you wouldn't want to send into you know the zombie apocalypse scenario, but that's what made him so like compelling and interesting to watch to me. Caleb, it definitely sounds like even though you weren't hung up on this movie, you didn't hate it. Right. And that's where I deferred from my friends that watched it with me is they were like trash movie this is one of the worst that I've seen and I was like well like you're I'm not going to argue against you but like here's where I also had a good time
1: with it nice nice well Caleb I'm kind of looking across the board at people I follow on Letterboxd and it's mostly a lot of three-star reviews a couple two and a half two one star three and a half what would you think you'd give it how many zombie kills are you going out of five <laughs> how
2: many zombie kills oof I uh, that's tricky
1: How about this? You can get back to us on that. Yeah, I have to sit
2: on that for a bit because I don't think it's like the worst film of all time, but it's not like... Like, it's no no Zombieland. So, it's somewhere between like a two and a half and a three and a half space. So, probably a three, but it could go as low as two and a half.
1: Okay, okay. So, kind of... In, in you know, a little, little indecisive here. A little yeah. bit of time to dwell on it, to think about it. And while he's doing that, I'm going to go arm in white mode again. You like zombies in Vegas, don't watch this movie. You should watch the 07 film, Resident Evil Extinction. <laughs> that is a great zombies in Vegas movie. I don't care if you haven't seen the first two Resident Evil movies. Nice. Highly recommend. Also calling 97. yeah hey. dude, let's 90- Dude, I don't think I've ever said this on the pod, but I, I do like those. Re- I know some people really hate Paul W. Anderson and those Resident Evil movies, but I, I think they're a good time. I think Mila Djokovic is great, and shout-out to director-wife duos, yada, yada. All right. Well, Caleb, thank you so much for talking a little bit about Army of the Dead. You've definitely piqued the interest of Colin and myself. You have. I, yeah. I,
0: there's a rock-solid chance that I'm going to watch this movie now. A little uh, 4th of
2: July nuke to suit your fancy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And there's a rock solid chance I'll be joining Colin. But speaking of joining Colin, Colin is going to open us up for our sub-segment of TV Talk, baby. TV! Gotta love it. We have a segment within a segment here. (laughs) Yeah, dude. Colin, you introduced Caleb, myself, and Daisy to a little show on Netflix recently. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the show? Well,
0: this show is called The Circle. Uh, It is, uh, ironically, kind of dangerously similar to Are You The One? in the sense that it's a reality TV show, and I'm realizing after I said that it's not similar in very many ways at all. Okay, so let me... I know, I was about to make fun of you. uh, So (laughs) let me... Let's start over. Are You The One? Rewinding. Rewinding. It is uh, a show in which uh, contestants are locked in an apartment... Uh, by themselves, uh, and they have access to this social media-style app called The Circle, and it's a game show slash reality TV show slash just insanity. So the premise is someone's going to win, I don't know, what is it, $100,000, something like that? Yeah, something so like that. So the yeah. premise is that at the end of every, but it's and it's not at the end of every episode per se, but at the end of whatever show that you're, you know, whatever one that you're watching right now, uh, they're going to have to rate everybody, and the top two people, so number one and number two in the ratings, get to be influencers, and they get to block somebody every, every you know, two episodes or so. And there's... Very survivor yes, the tribe is spoken. And there's so much... There's so much strategy. Well, Colin,
1: did you talk about how they don't even interact with each other? Oh in yeah, person? they don't see each other. So there's catfish. They're all in different apartments. Yeah, there's buildings.
0: catfish on the show. There's and there's people, you know, girls playing guys and guys playing girls and, and all this But then
1: there are some people who are actually playing. Yeah, and then there are some too. real people.
0: And it's just so incredible like the strategy that they all think through and go through to to stay on top of, like, oh, well, I've got to maintain this alliance, but oh, this person's you know really aiming for me, so I got to figure out a way to get them out. And it and there's just and they introduce new people at, at seemingly at random, and they add new rules, and there's games that they have to play that uh, force them to reveal things about themselves. There's one twist in season two that I don't want to spoil because Caleb's not there yet, but there's a, yep. there's a dude playing a girl, uh, and something happens in the show that just ble- like blew me and Catherine away. Like I can't believe they let this happen, but then they swerve and recover from it uh, in such a crazy way. It, it, like the show takes a like. A twist on a twist, and it's, oh my goodness. Guys, this is trashy reality television. I'm not going to try to tell <laughs> you that it's not trashy reality television. That's exactly what it is. Um, and <laughs> Well, and I think what Colin's
1: kind of hitting at, and whether or not you'll like the show or not, is that keyword of alliance. Because this is very much a show about social media. No one really knows who each other is. It's all based off the circle, social media profile, They create to share with one another. Right. So it's a lot of as far as the filmmaking goes. It's a lot of cutting between these different apartment buildings. And in season one, oh, what's the guy's name? It starts with an S. He's like he uses his wife's picture. Uh, He's playing the girl. Seaburn. Seaburn. That's right. So there's this guy named Seaburn, but he is playing. Is it Rebecca? Rachel? Caleb. You're on season one yeah i think it's rebecca i'm pretty sure it's so he rebecca. is presenting himself as rebecca to the other members of the circle and he's trying to form his alliances to where no one can figure out that he's catfishing the rest of them because he doesn't want to be blocked voted out of right. the circle at the end
2: he came pretty close to being figured out <laughs> spoilers
1: <laughs> have you finished season one yet caleb
2: yeah, Caleb. You I'm in season one. Guys, I watched that show so fast, I don't, I don't, I don't remember at this point. <laughs> How about
1: this? Has anybody won? Has anybody won money? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're on season. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest, because I know Colin's really hung up on the show, and Daisy, Daisy loves, loves, loves the show. I'm not quite as hung up on it as Daisy. Of course you're not, Jack, because you hate fun things. I hate all fun things. I hated *Requiem for a Dream. Everyone was like, this is the most fun movie ever. And the Jack's over there ruining our fun. <laughs> I'm of the mindset, I like my reality competitive TV shows where they have all the players introduced at the beginning. My big turn off with The Circle is I'm not crazy about the introducing new Dude, players. Dude, it switches stuff
0: up show. so awesome. Like, oh gosh, I love the introduction of new players. It's such a... Now, I, I don't think the circle necessarily
1: does a bad job of it. It's just... Because here's the deal. When you have new players, sure, you already... You could switch up, change up your alliances, but you also kind of already have alliances you've already formed. So, from a psychological perspective, there's going to be people who are... It's going to be easier for them to stay in with the alliances they have. And And I know there's exceptions, and... There's twists and turns, and I think season two especially does a really good job at that. But there's something about that competitive mindset that just doesn't really work with me, the way it works with something like Are You The One? This also might be nitpicky, but I kind of hate it when these shows don't really explain the majority of the rules in the first episode. (laughs) Because this is one of those shows where one of their... Oh, I said, this is one of those shows, I don't really like it when shows... Don't really explain the rules, the foundation for how the show's set at the beginning. Because this is one of those shows that's very much built on the twists and turns like, oh boy, little did our players know that we had a surprise for them. I get why shows do that, but for me, it almost hurts the competitive edge of who I want to root for and how these people are playing the game. This is nitpicky. I get that. Everything I've said this episode. It's a different dynamic, Jack, because they have to actively adapt
2: while in this strategy-based environment. It's not a, here are the rules, it's going to stay like this, go. Like, that's a totally different dynamic, right? Like, that That would be,
1: it's just a different system, a way to do it. And I definitely get why people enjoy that. Because for me, the second part of why I think I don't really dig this show's vibe is the fact that I'm not really a social media-savvy person, and this show is all about social media and presentation and using the Internet to present an image of yourself. And for me, a lot of my kind of Internet interest followings has less to do with who you are and more of what you're interested in as far as subcultures go, which I think that's a whole nother rant for another day. But there's just a lot the show offers that doesn't really tick the right boxes for me. Sure.
2: And Jack, I'm not super social media savvy either, but I'm super interested in other people engaging with this idea yeah. and watching how they go about doing it.
0: And, and one thing that I think is so cool is that it, the only way they communicate with each other is via text on a screen. There's no voice right. communication, there's no video communication. No video. The, you have a no picture to go off of, a profile description, and the text that they say. And what I, one of my, some of my favorite moments are when, like, someone tries to say something really nice, and then the other it cuts to the other person that are like, "Oh, I can't believe they would say that." And it 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 almost is like a rep, like a, a a visual representation of how. Fucked up social media can be because oh, yeah. you you don't have the Contact, you, you don't have tone of voice you don't have the prop like oh it definitely shows like, that the, miscommunication oh for play. sure like the people you just don't have those types of uh, you just don't have those types of, of things and I I love it I I, I love how it represents it yeah. I love I love that idea it's just incredible. And I will say this.
1: I think for me the strong point of the show where I'm more in favor than not in favor cuz I might not love this show. I might not even like this show, but I do think it is a good show. And the reason for that is because you are basically watching people's you are basically watching people sit in a room by themselves communicating with each other over chats. And it requires very strong editing and production work in the background behind the scenes from the post-production crew to really put that into a dynamic engaging episode, which well, yeah. I think
2: is really enjoyable to watch. It also requires like, you have to pick people that are willing to na- essentially narrate everything that they're doing or like, mm-hmm, if not mm-hmm. coach them to do that. Cause like, I was like throughout season one, I was like imagining a okay, What would it, what would I be like in this environment or this setting? And it's like, <laughs> I'm not one to narrate every single thing that I'm doing. And then you have to be like, you have to really sell your emotion and like really animate that. Um, and so you see, and which is why I was kind of like <laughs> uh, a little confused at the start because I was like, man, like all these people seem like they have very different personalities, but all of them are very animated even when you don't think they're the kind of person that would be.
0: For sure. Exactly. And for those reasons, that is why I'm putting Caleb in first place. <laughs> Boom. Got him. I will say this. The
1: individuals who get first and second place at the end of season one, easily the best players they oh. deserved. Yeah. I was like, either of these individuals deserve to win this game. and For sure. They were both the top players, so that was kind of cool to see the ones that I thought were Daisy and I both thought, "Oh, these are the best," and they made it there to one and two.
2: Yeah, this isn't this isn't really a environment where being super cutthroat uh, is going to be preferable in your favor. And I mean, and,
0: and cutthroat people, uh, cutthroat people get punished big time. Usually, yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. like it, it really is fascinating.
2: Well I and mean, you have to think like it's such a small sample size. But when you go mm-hmm. to a larger space like Twitter with the whole like cancel culture, that becomes a very different environment with different variables. Uh, the cut that, that cutthroat nature tends to rise up a little bit more when you're not being as personable with with people.
0: For sure.
1: Yeah, I kind of like what you're hitting at there, Caleb, because maybe that's part of my disconnect from the show is is the world of Twitter or Letterboxd or whatever social media I'm using might not always line up with how it's portrayed in the show. And I don't think that's a sure. bad thing. I don't think that's a knock against the show. Yeah. But I
0: do think it does kind of create a bit of cognitive dissonance for myself as sure. the viewer. That's fair. I understand. Like, don't get me wrong. This is one of those things where I totally get why people wouldn't like it. Like, that's not, mm-hmm. that's not my, my I'm not, this is definitely like a wreck of Warren. You, you are not, you are, <laughs> you are not, if you don't like reality TV, you're not going to like this show, period. Like, that's it. Um,
1: and I very much come into this conversation from the place of, with Are You the One, I was a little skeptical, but I got into it really quick. There were just things about it that really grabbed my interest and my attention, I was like, "This is crazy," ah. but with this show, it definitely took me a little bit longer to really get into it. And even then, I'm not in love with it. I'm not head over heels about it yeah. the way I think Colin or Daisy are.
0: That's fair. I to I, I get it, man. I understand. Jeez, uh, what a show, though, dude! It's to Caleb. Just wait, <laughs> Seas- okay. And I'll say this: so season one is a lot more happy go lucky social media savvy people who are, yeah, who right, are almost right, cari- yep, caricatures right, yep. of themselves uh, of stereotypes mm-hmm. and season 2 is cerebral as hell there is yeah that's what i'm cerebral. starting to notice <laughs> there is strategy 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 like those pe- those people on that show Wow. They absolutely just bring it uh in terms of playing the game. Uh and it's incredible. I definitely love it. No,
1: I'm tracking it to you, Colin. I definitely enjoyed season 2 more for that reason. So I I get it. I get it. Well, Colin, Caleb, as we close out TV talk, do you guys have any final things you want to say about the circle?
0: Nope. <laughs> good good yeah, show. I
1: uh not for everyone i got nothing the point where we all get tired well let me go ahead and address the thing that's on every single person's mind who listens to this
0: podcast colin caleb what do we learn today uh <laughs> practical effects are almost always better than cgi the same lesson we learn every week <laughs> the same lesson we respect the research respect the research
2: yeah, I don't know why, Jack, but that question always throws me off. I feel like at this point I should be expecting it.
1: <laughs> no, I stole it from some streamers. I, like. I can get rid of what we learned today. No, hey, no, no. We don't no. have to I learn anything. I'm going to learn, gonna learn to the answer. same lesson
0: every day. It's fine.
1: Caleb, if it makes you feel any better, I learned that. Sometimes you watch a film, it horrifies you, you give it three stars, and then your buddy Caleb comes in, and you're bumping it up to three and a half, <laughs> baby. Let's go, Aronofsky. He says it. that Get like it's a Black
2: big Swan. deal. Like, oh, I bumped it up half a star. Like, oh, it means it's, it means it's a lot better now. I can bump now. it down if you want. No. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he can bump
0: it back down. He can bring that average letterbox rating from a 4.1 to a 4 if you want, but... <laughs>
1: But technically, by that logic, anything under a 4.5 is going to bring the rating down. That's true. Well, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Colin is up to bat for picking our next film that we're going to cover in episode 30. Man,
0: let me tell you guys something. So I picked this movie because of something I was reminded of from watching The Seventh Curse. And it was specifically the first name of our main character, Dr. Young. <laughs> and his first... Doctor? His No, not Dr. Caleb. Doctor? Fucking Do- moron. You idiot. You, you worthless <laughs> oh, peon. Geez, <laughs> Man, be nice I'm to I'm sorry, Caleb. That was a joke. Uh, which I'll have to explain to you later. I now realize because neither of you are my good buddy from high school. So I guess Jack. I, actually, you both are my good buddies from high school. Anyway, you're not a specific good buddy from high school. I'm getting off track. Monty Python God voice. Good on. <laughs> yes. Get on with it. Okay. So Chester <laughs> is his first name, and I thought to myself, "What is one of my favorite movie quotes, ever, ever, that involves Chester?" I will give you both. Ten seconds to see if you can think of a movie that has uh, Chester in it. All right. Ten. Uh, nine. Uh, eight. Man, I'm going to feel so seven, stupid when he announces it. I'm going to be six, so mad. Five. Four. A rooster Cogburn. Three. No, that's not Chester. That's a rooster. <laughs> I'm thinking of the cheetahs. I can The Cheetah, One, or Cheetos. Che- got, Cheetos. Ah! What if I give you I a nothing. first and a last name? I'll just say the quote. How about you tell us the movie, just, yeah. Chester Copperpot, <laughs> Chester Copperpot, Chester Copperpot, guys, it's our nothing. time down here.
1: Caleb, edit this all out. I'm oh kidding. come on, don't yeah, edit this I'm out. Kidding, it's the
0: Goonies, man. The Goonies. Oh,
2: oh, I've not seen the Goonies.
0: I, you've not seen the Goonies.
2: To be fair, Colin, Catherine
0: just yelled. It is what one the of the fuck? first.
2: It is one of the first movies I added to my watch list when I made my Letterboxd account, bro.
0: All right, well, <laughs> you know what? This it. is uh, this is a unexpected, unexpected benefit. Then uh, we're watching the Goonies. I'm in an '80s vibe. I'm feeling it. I'm hot. I'm sexy. Let's get it going,
1: young. Sh- I totally feel less bad about not knowing the movie, because last time I watched that movie, I was in eighth grade at Collins house.
0: <laughs> the last time I watched that, oh man, it's been so long since I watched it, and I started thinking about it, and I remember all the fun stuff in that movie, and I would argue that this, that The Goonies is a, I mean, it's like a action-adventure, kitty comedy type movie, and it's the first comedy-esque movie Type film that we will have covered, I think, on the podcast. <laughs> so you're not wrong. You didn't laugh during Six Underground. No, no, I no, no. no. At it. I'm sorry. Intentionally <laughs> funny, Jack. Intentionally funny.
1: <laughs> now, one thing, and we'll talk about it more. In a, I like about the Goonies is that it definitely is a genre bending kind of. Like Seventh Curse, it's a whole cocktail of different things going on. It's very much an adventure movie, but it's very funny. The gang's getting together. Young Josh
0: Brolin is hot. Bro, yeah, young Josh Brolin, young Sean Astin, dude. Goonies never say die. die. Data from, uh, or Data is... I know, we were talking about Temple of Doom, and
1: now here we are. Huh? He's never seen
0: the Truffle Shuffle? You've never seen the Truffle Shuffle? Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) No. (laughs) Alright, alright. Well, let's close this out. Colin, good job. Join us next time as we watch Richard Donner's 1985 film, The Goonies. Keep it up
0: our 80s trend. Should be a good time. My wife just fed me some food that she had to make for her podcast. And I'm gonna go ahead and say live on air that this is my new favorite thing that really? you've made. Yep. Wow. It's completely Bro, give it a
1: shout-out. Give her
0: podcast Dark a shout Side out. Tour Guide. My wife cooks a meal based on a shitty that they're covering. What's the dish from what city? This is vegetable curry, and it is for oh, Bangalore, oh my the city Bangalore. Ooh. And oh, we yeah, Apex, this we is know. a fun... Okay, speaking of Apex, I they've all three texted me at some point and complained. They're like, I fucking hate Apex. And I'm like, why? Because our next city is Bangalore. And every time we Google Bangalore or something, the Apex character comes up. Up. <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> hey Bangalore is a good champ Iconic.
1: very good champ. well anyways I'm going to close this bad boy out before we start ranting about Apex I'm Jack I'm Paul Loon. I'm Caleb and we are yelling at the screen thank you for joining us we'll see you next time to talk about the Goonies Woo! bye Bye-bye. later
2: you prayed and believed your whole life and here you are. Explain that to me.
0: What do you say to people that are offended by your show? Because you pray to Jesus in every episode.
2: You might want to think about it differently, instructor. Come on, man, you can't forget that. Think, uh, Roman Coliseum. Think we're cheering for your I'm Professor Radisson. This is philosophy one five zero. I would like to bypass senseless debate altogether and jump to the conclusion which every sophomore is already aware of that there is no God. papers i just given you the three
1: little words. God is dead. It's weakness. It's wrong. I, I can't what you. You
2: cannot bring yourself to admit that God is dead. You will need to defend the antithesis. You think Jesus is my friend. You think Jesus is God.
0: What I want is for them to make their own choice. That's what God wants. You have no idea how much am talking about until are you going to make them fail?